Our next guest on Sunday Extra has produced a new history of Australian bushrangers that's unlike the stories that, chances are, you're familiar with, whether that's from high school history classes or the huge cultural industry that's grown up around a fairly small cast of iconic Australian bushrangers. The new book is called Boundary Crosses, The Hidden History of Australia's Other Bushrangers, and it profiles Aboriginal, African-American, Chinese and female bushrangers, their lives and the different legends that accompanied them. Boundary Crosses was written by Dr Meg Foster, who's currently a research fellow at Newnham College in Cambridge, and she joins us from Cambridge now. Welcome, Meg. Thank you very much for having me. Boundary Crosses introduces us to a, a new and more diverse cast of bushrangers, four characters in particular. I wonder if you could give us a, a brief introduction to the four characters that you've decided to focus on. Sure, I'd love to. Um, so the book opens with the life of an African-American man known as Black Douglas. He was the terror of the goldfields in 1850s Victoria. Um, but the legend so far around him has faded out of national view, although at the time he was he was infamous. Mm. Um, most of the colonial sources really look at his time on the goldfields, but I try to push further to see where he actually came from, what his experiences were, how did he even get to Australia? Um, second in the book is Sam Poo, the Chinese bushranger who was operating around the Mudgee area in 1865 who was meant to have murdered a white police constable, senior constable John Ward. Um, but there's really more to his story than meets the eye. Um, I, I don't want to give away too many spoilers, but the, it's it's not as simple as it seems by this kind of brief overview. Mm. Um, then we move on to the Aboriginal bushrangers in the book. So I have um, Marianne Bug, who some listeners might be familiar with as the partner of the famous white bushranger, Captain Thunderbolt. So she has had a little bit of a, a kind of a foray into the national consciousness, but largely as kind of a partner or helpmate to a famous white bushranging man. But there's way more to her story than has previously been written about, and she's pretty badass, to be honest. Um, <laughs> some of her her stories seem stranger than fiction. Um, so I, I think there's a lot for, for readers and and. Um, listeners to follow there and then finally we move on to Jimmy Gubner who is probably the most famous bushranger in the book some listeners may be familiar with Thomas Keneally's fictionalized version of him in his book The Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith that mm. was released in the 70s um, but Keneally's book is an historical fiction it's, it's based on fiction it was his version of the story because he was trying to comment on race relations in the 70s um, so most people are familiar with this very um, made-up, highly um, altered version of Jimmy Governor's life, and I try to to bring us back to the sources, to what happened, to Governor's experiences on his own terms, um, as well as those of his white wife, Ethel Governor, and his Aboriginal family in the rural town of Wallar in New South Wales. And it's interesting, Meg, that you say to, to bring us back to the sources, because you write that the four individuals that you've chosen were exceptional people, but they also left exceptional traces. And I wonder if you could unpack that a little bit more for us. Um, well, it's because people of colour are incredibly difficult to see properly in the archives. Mm. The archives we have left, the state archives, for example, of New South Wales, the, the main source base I have, they're colonial sources made by white people about the things that interested white people. And for the most part, 
they weren't interested in people of colour unless it was to control them, police them, survey them. So it's very difficult to piece together how people of colour from the past saw themselves, saw their own actions and their place in the world. Um, The crime archive is one area where we have a lot more information than we would otherwise, but it's an archive that is inherently problematic, right, because it's an archive that is criminalising people, it's intending to see them as criminals, as people who are somehow dehumanised, but also as people who they're not really interested in apart from how their actions intersect with the law, which is colonial law. Um, So the bushrangers I look at are infamous in their own times. There's a wealth of other material in terms of um, newspaper articles. In some instances, I was able to track down a, a descendant of um, Marianne Bug and speak to her and understand a bit more about the family story. Um, so they're, they're individuals who I had a bit more material to work with, but the, it was material that is still very imperfect. Mm. And when you use that phrase of, you know, it being difficult to understand how these people actually saw themselves, I can see Mm. how that would be a very, very hard challenge at this distance and particularly with um, the the people that you've uh, focused on. How do you feel you managed to to do that? Did you find new material that hadn't been... um, used before and uh, what what new dimensions will we learn about these people from the research that you've done um how it, it was very difficult mm. just to say the least so yeah um this is basically 10 years of research and one one book so it was really important for me to try to recognize the colonial archive but push beyond it and for each individual what that looked like is very different um to take the example of the Chinese bushranger Sampu, let's start there. So we had some details from the, the criminal archive, from the colonial records. So, for example, in his prison register, it's recorded that he's from a place called Amoy in China. One small detail, one small detail, when you research what is happening in Amoy in China, how Amoy figures in the broader story of Chinese migration to Australia, you get a completely different, picture and perspective to what had previously been recorded. Once again, I'm mindful of not giving away too many spoilers, (laughs) but it it really gives a more of a perspective of a Chinese tradition of banditry, for example. These bushrangers weren't just operating in relation to, you know, your Ben Halls and your Captain Thunderbolts. They had a very specific cultural understanding of their, their actions that they brought Um, And so there's a tradition of banditry in China that goes all the way back to the 12th century. But this particular place of Amoy in China has a very unique experience when it comes to banditry on the ground, real live banditry, people robbing to survive. Um, And so that's part of the way that I try to tackle his story. But as I say, how I, I tried to shift the perspective and see these bushrangers from their own perspective. It was really tailored to to each individual and to the sources that I had available. On Sunday Extra, we're speaking with Dr Meg Foster, author of Boundary Crosses, The Hidden History of Australia's Other Bushrangers. And and Meg, um, in uh, telling these new stories, I I wonder if what is what you're trying to do to broaden the the canon the pantheon of australian bushrangers or are you trying to do something different um well i 
I am trying to broaden our understanding of bushranging, mm. but at, at a kind of deeper level, I'm trying to get us to to reckon with why we don't know these stories, right? Yes. Why why have these been, people been erased from the national imaginary? And as you read their stories, you realise it's not because they're not exciting, it's not because they're not incredibly amazing, impressive, fascinating individuals. That's not the reason. The reason is legacies of colonialism, colonial ideas of race and gender really inflect these people's stories and the sources that are told about them. And that's why they've been written out of the national mythology, the national legend. Mm. So I'm really hoping to open a conversation um, about who who are Australian legends, why are they legends and, and who's excluded from that? tradition and what does that tell us about our values and our perspectives as as Australians um I'm also as as I've been talking about before trying to really recover these bushrangers experiences on their own terms so my view is that it's not enough to stop at you know adding a little bit of color to a national tradition that's predominantly white that that's not enough at all and I think we really risk reinscribing white colonial ideas onto these figures by trying to fit them into a nice little package, nice little box of bushranging that we already have set up by the likes of Ned Kelly. It's really important to leave to leave space and to understand how these figures saw themselves so that we don't end up, you know, essentially recolonizing them. Um, and in trying to make them heroes, sometimes we risk really erasing what made them human. And that's definitely something that I want readers to be really mindful of as they're encountering the book. And Meg, through your decade-long uh, sort of research into what exists in the historical record of these people, you've uh, described how they were, in many cases, notorious in their times. Could you give us a little bit more detail of how you think they went from that level of notoriety in their time to becoming erased from the national imagination? When and how did that uh, shift happen? Um, yeah, that, that's a really good question, and it's it it happens over a long period, right? So the immediate danger that these figures posed isn't isn't the second they faded out of memory. It's not that simple. You can't just flick a switch and then suddenly mm. poof, everyone forgets. Um, it, it's a, it's a process, and it's a process of um, I guess in the immediate aftermath looking at a bush ranger like Jimmy Governor, for example, like reckoning with what's happened, reckoning with the violence that occurred in his instance. Um, but the, the shift really happens when bush ranging becomes a national tradition. Um, so bush ranging, as we think about it, as we experience it today as Australians, is really a product of the 20th century, even though these bush rangers are operating in the 19th century. So, so bush ranging from the 20th century really took off around Federation and afterwards when the real threat of bushranging had ended. So it was a lot easier to romanticise mm. bushranging figures as white noble frontiersmen who um, kind of in a way proved Australians, white Australians' worthiness to be in the country, their kind of perseverance in the bush, their courage, their ability to kind of make the natural landscape their own became a very helpful narrative, right, because it allowed um, Australians to really get a sense of, yeah, we've, we, we have kind of earned our place here. We've earned our place in the country. So really it becomes part of a narrative that justifies 
colonization. It justifies the dispossession of Aboriginal people. Um, and so people of colour don't fit into that narrative. They don't fit into that mythos. They don't justify white male settlers' place in the colony. In fact, they do quite the opposite. They undercut it and they show that it was inherently unstable. And that's really the reason um, when we look at the long durée of bushranging history that these bushrangers of colour have been written out of those narratives. And Meg, I was fascinated to read that as well as producing this substantial historical volume, Boundary Crosses, in the case of uh, Sam Poo's story, you've also been involved in some collaborations with an artist uh, intended to bring the story of Sam Poo more to the public eye uh, in, in contemporary times. Could you tell us a bit about that collaboration? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, so... Jason Fu was an amazing Chinese-Australian contemporary artist. Um, I heard about him through a mutual acquaintance who was a curator. Originally, I was really interested in picking his brain about why he was interested in doing a work on Sam Fu. So mm. Jason Fu already had the idea um, before I met him. But we we met up over coffee and he'd only just started looking into Sam Fu's story and was basically like, oh, you know, all I know is he's a Chinese guy who went out and shot some people. And I was like, oh, no, 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 no. That, that, is, not, <laughs> that is not what happened. Um, and a beautiful collaboration was born from there. So I, I worked on the historical part and I shared that with Jason. Um, and he took that in a completely different, um, into a completely different space and on completely different levels to what I'm able to engage with as an historian, right? Because I'm, I'm kind of, confined to speaking about what I have evidence for, whereas Jason as an artist can really take things further, can delve into symbolism, can really engage in an emotive side of what it means to be excluded from this national tradition. Um, and, yeah, we've been working together on and off since about 20, 2015, I think. So it, it's been a really fruitful and, I mean, from my perspective, very rewarding um, journey to, to work with Jason and see how his work develops too. Dr Meg Foster, thank you so much for joining us on Sunday Extra. Thank you so much for having me. And Meg's new book is called Boundary Crosses, The Hidden History of Australia's Other Bushrangers. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.